Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, February 11th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, we'll check in with our colleague Helen Branswell for her view on the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing vaccine rollout. Then we'll chat with Dr. David Fagenbaum, a physician and scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, about the work he and his colleagues are doing to identify and develop new treatments for people with COVID-19. Lastly, we'll bring you another lightning round, including our very hottest takes on this week's non-COVID news, including Gilead's souring relationship and Alzheimer's brouhaha, Reddit bros discovering biotech stocks, and lastly, a quick chat with Pat Skerritt, the host of Stat's newest podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from Stat. I'm here with Chris Benko, the CEO of Conexa, a software company dedicated to making clinical research more agile, safer, and friendlier for the people who participate. During the pandemic, regulatory agencies like the FDA have received praise for encouraging quick and meaningful adaptations. Do you think these changes are permanent? Starting with the 21st Century Cures Act in 2016, lots of initiatives have tried to modernize clinical trials but adopting innovative tech was still challenging for pharmaceutical research. But the pandemic has changed medical research in innumerable ways, and it's made innovation non-optional. These technologies are now a requirement to ensure that clinical programs can continue while keeping patients safe. Thanks, Chris. For more information, visit conexahealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A health.com. You may have heard that COVID cases and hospitalizations are down quite a bit. Yeah, so daily case numbers in the U.S. are 63% lower now than they were at their peak in mid-January. Hospitalizations are down 40%. But they're still at levels we hadn't seen since last fall. And we're recording more than 90,000 new COVID cases per day, and more than 90,000 people are currently in the hospital with the disease. Deaths, while they've started to decline as well, are still amounting to more than 2,700 every day. To get a reality check on what all of this means, we turn to our friend and colleague, Helen Branswell, Stats Senior Writer on Infectious Disease. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, nice to speak with you guys. So Helen, you interviewed uh, the new CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, this week, and she told you that the bruises from the loss of morale at CDC under the Trump administration are going to take a long time to heal. What is your sense of her approach as a leader and what difference do you expect it to make uh, in the course of the pandemic here in the U.S.? You know, it was the first time I've interviewed Dr. Walensky. And so uh, I have to be careful about how far I, I go from a very short conversation. But, you know, for starters, she seemed very clear that there were these morale problems at the agency, which is it is good and, and knew what the cause of them was. She's been meeting with all the department heads um, trying to get a sense of um, what needs to be done to get the agency's morale back on track. Um, You know, her approach, I think, is that she's going to place an emphasis on the science, as this administration has said it would. I think that will make a difference. Um, You know, the last administration had other interests when it, you know, came to dealing with with COVID-19. And, um, you know, I think for people in public health watching the way things have evolved in this country, because um, the former administration was not interested in acknowledging the pandemic or the danger it posed to Americans was hugely distressing. So we especially want to talk 
with you this week to get your perspective on the dynamic we're seeing, you know, right now in mid-February, where the numbers seem to be going in the right direction. We're making our way through the winter, and maybe things are looking up. Uh, but we also know, to quote Dr. Anthony Fauci, I know you're a warrior, Helen. <laughs> so what do you think of where things stand now? Are you feeling at all optimistic? You know, we've seen so many times, the pattern seems to be people put constraint measures in place, they start to bite, and then states start to release them. And people go back to the behavior that got us to where we were. And, you know, we take off again. And every time the numbers take off, they they go up to a higher level than before. I'm not sure I expect that in the next couple of months, because one, a lot of people in the country have had the infection, and two, um, you know, an increasing number of people are being vaccinated. But there's still a lot of people in the country who haven't any kind of immunity to this virus and who are completely susceptible to it. And, you know, I think we're in a dangerous spot right now. People are very tired. Um, people want this to be over. They want to get back to their old lives. And with the rollout of vaccines starting to look more efficient, you know, it, it would be understandable if people thought, okay, we can see the, the, the end of the tunnel here. But this is going to take quite a bit longer than people want to hear. And, and I do worry that we could have, you know, another surge well, one thing um, you didn't even mention, which, uh, you know, adds a whole other layer uh, of fear here, I think, is the variants, of course. You know, the CDC has warned that the B117 variant, which was first identified in the UK, is likely to become the dominant strain here in the US by March next month. And because it's more transmissible, that could lead to an even bigger surge. You know, folks like Dr. Mike Osterholm have said within the next six to 14 weeks, we're really facing this potential. And then there are, of course, the B1351 and P1 strains, which appear to potentially escape prior immunity and some protection from vaccines. What worries you the most about the variants? And what do you think we're going to see here? I guess what worries me the most about the variants is how quickly they've arisen and how um, they've arisen in a bunch of different places in the world and how much trouble they they appear to be poised to cause us. Um, As long as this virus is allowed to transmit amongst people in large numbers, we're going to see more of these. And as we've already seen... um, at least the the um, variant that was first spotted in South Africa, the B1351, it is capable of um, eroding the benefit of some of the vaccines that have been tested against it. That's really worrying because although, you know, we've gotten to vaccines faster than anyone could have imagined, having to think about updating vaccines already is kind of a daunting process. There isn't currently enough capacity to make the vaccine the world needs to get everybody vaccinated once. And now we're talking about having to update um, vaccines, which will suck up some of the capacity that's, you know, currently being used to uh, generate vaccine against the original strains. So, you know, I guess the the, the answer is that I just find um, the evidence that they're going to be variants and that they can arise fairly quickly and and have substantial impact is is alarming to me. So you've also reported uh, closely on vaccine development and have made the point that, uh, you know, manufacturing, distribution, logistics can all 
there can be bumps in those processes that could slow down the rollout of vaccines. Um, we wanted to play you some sound from Rick Gates. He's the head of pharmacy at Walgreens on his expectation for when anyone might be able to walk into one of their pharmacies or go online to make an appointment to get a COVID shot. Uh, Gates spoke this week at the Healthy Returns Conference that was convened by CNBC. If you look at the trajectories of vaccines being produced, so we're going to see widespread availability probably until the spring. I'd say late March and early April will be the timeline that you'll have it more broadly across all of our stores, uh, across the nation and pharmacies and other places to start vaccinations. So, Helen, what do you think? Is late March, early April likely for the widespread availability of the COVID vaccine? You know, I think if you listen to what he's saying, he may be saying that it will be available widely at their stores. I don't know that that means it's going to be available widely to the population. You know, there still isn't a ton of clarity about when the United States is taking uh, delivery of orders on what kind of a timeline um, new product is coming in. You know, I, I think if people are listening to that and thinking that means, okay, sometime in March or April, I might be able to get, uh, you know, my first shot at my local pharmacy. I think they're probably mistaken. Um, I was looking at the Bloomberg vaccine tracker uh, before, you know, jumping on this call with you guys, and they were projecting that at the current rate of vaccination, it's going to take nine months to uh, vaccinate a significant portion of the country twice. And that, of course, depends on product being available, which is always a big if. So like I said, this is going to take longer than people would like it to. That's just a fact, and we need to be ready for it. So on the subject of variants and the, the potential need for repeat vaccinations, uh, Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorsi also spoke at that conference about their vaccine, which is the first to demonstrate protection against COVID with just one dose. So asked about the potential for needing annual shots because of either the rise of different variants or just the need to boost immunity, here's what Gorsky said. But I think most people feel that this will be something where likely for the, yes, the next several years, we'll be getting a COVID-19 shot just like we would a flu shot. Now, exactly what that shot's going to be comprised of, I don't think we know today. Uh, but uh, I, I think we could all imagine a future uh, where we're living with this, uh, but where we can keep the science, uh, you know, at pace with the virus. So Gorski's opinion is pretty widely held among people in the pharmaceutical industry who manufacture vaccines, and they obviously have a fiduciary interest in continuing to sell these vaccines in perpetuity. But I was curious, you know, have you found in your reporting talking to people in the scientific community, do they have a similar expectation that we'll need COVID shots every year, every few years, or even, you know, more frequently than that for the foreseeable future? Um, you know, it's certainly something that people have um, have an open mind to, have been thinking about all along that this may be necessary. It's a daunting task when you think about it. I mean, by the end of this year, most of the world's population will not have been vaccinated against COVID-19. And to think about starting to have to revaccinate people who've already been vaccinated at a time when, you know, you're still trying to increase the size of the original pool, that's not going to be an easy thing to do. Uh, there isn't, you know, unlimited capacity to make vaccine. And uh, this may be necessary, but I'm not certain that I would expect somebody who was vaccinated this year in the United States will be vaccinated next year in the United States. I think, you know, if we get to the point where 
we need to have annual shots. That might be a system that falls into place over time, but it I don't know that it's doable in the short term. So Helen, we'll ask you the same question we posted to Dr. Paul Offit last week. Uh, when do you think that we can all get together and take you, Helen Branswell, out for cocktails? <laughs> I keep pushing back uh, timeframes when people ask me questions about things like that. Um, I guess I would hope that maybe towards the end of this year we'll be at a point where enough of us have been vaccinated and the people who would be serving us those cocktails in the bar would be vaccinated too, that we might be able to venture out. But of course, it's cold in December in um, Boston, and I still think I might want an outdoor drink rather than an indoor drink. I think it's going to be a while still. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We talked with Helen about the huge promise of vaccines for COVID-19, but what doctors still lack are large numbers of drugs to treat patients infected by the virus. Adam and Damien talked with Dr. David Fagenbaum, a physician and scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. David is best known for his personal battle against Castleman disease, which nearly killed him four times before he discovered a treatment that saved his life. David's research lab at Penn is now working to catalog and analyze drugs that might prove effective against COVID-19. Here's that interview now. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Adam. So when the pandemic hit, your lab created a database of drugs being used to treat COVID-19 patients, as you mentioned. It's called the Corona Project. So what's the goal of the Corona Project? The goal is to collect data on all of the various treatments that are being tried for COVID-19. So in one place, you can find all drugs reported to be used for COVID-19. And then we use that information and, and subjective qualitative data on whether drugs look promising or not to help to prioritize which drugs should move forward to randomized controlled trials. Because you can't determine if a drug works against COVID unless you've actually studied it in a well-designed large RCT. So we use this as kind of a, an early place to get a sense for what looks promising. We provide that data to funders, and then we also look to identify drugs that should move forward to trials. And so what kind of progress are you making on sort of the second half of that goal on actually testing these things out in a rigorous way? So we've made the data publicly available. It's been um, accessed by, I think it's like 20,000 users at this stage. And so what we're hearing is that drug makers are able to go there and get a sense for which drugs in their portfolio are being tried for COVID. And they can use that as some kind of preliminary data to determine whether they want to move forward with the trial. But we're also being proactive. We're not just trying to make it a resource. We're actually working directly with the FDA and a group at FDA that's very interested in drug repurposing like we are to, to launch a large scale trial. And so we're, we're in the I'd say, um, early stages of putting together a, a large randomized controlled trial of those most promising agents from corona. So the U.S. government has invested about $8 billion to find drugs for COVID. You know, most of that went to research into the manufactured antibodies. That's according to a recent story in the New York Times. You know, that's less than half the money that was spent on vaccine development. The U.S. also lacks a centralized network of hospitals to run randomized clinical trials. Is the Biden administration proposing any changes? 
So we haven't gotten too much clarity on, on the specific changes that need to be made. We're all aware of the shortcomings um, within our system. Um, we basically, people say, you know, we don't have one U.S. healthcare system. We have thousands of U.S. healthcare systems, you know, all in one country. Um, but I'm hopeful because on the second day of the Biden administration, there was an executive order specifically around the idea of advancing treatments through appropriate clinical trials. So we don't have details yet on, on how, um, but we certainly have an early signal that there is interest. So in the early days of the pandemic, as we mentioned, there was a lot of optimism for the antiviral remdesivir when you know data started rolling in in the spring. We've since learned that the drug only has a modest benefit for patients, it would seem, and it has not been shown to meaningfully improve survival. I was curious, what are your thoughts about the potential for the next wave of novel antiviral treatments? There's uh, one from Merck, as you know, and another from Atia, with results expected fairly soon. Um, you know, what are your expectations for that, and 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 what do you think is important about the timing? I suppose about that data. These are really important questions, and as we've dove through data on over 400 drugs given to now over 270,000 patients that are in our database, it's become clear that we can't just think about treating COVID with antivirals. We need to think about this in multiple ways. So antivirals directly interfere with the virus and the life cycle of the virus. Those are typically important and they're effective early on in disease course. Well, one of the challenges with COVID is that you're asymptomatic for the first five to 14 days while the virus is replicating all throughout your body. And so how do you find those people to get them an antiviral early on when they're not showing any symptoms? That's a really big challenge with COVID. Um, there isn't going to be one drug that works no matter what time in your disease course. It's going to be, and it's actually already been shown that certain drugs are effective at certain time points. And some of those drugs that are effective at one time point are actually harmful if given at another time point. So we haven't mentioned hydroxychloroquine yet, which is probably for the best. But more recently, there's been a similar controversy stirred up over the parasitic drug ivermectin. Again, politics seem to be intruding into the debate a little bit here. What do we know or don't know about the role that ivermectin might play in treating COVID? You're right. There are a lot of parallels here. So um, there was a lot of excitement early on with hydroxychloroquine because there were large observational studies uh, where a large number of patients got the drug and a large number of patients survived and did well. And so the assumption was that, oh, the drug helped those patients to do well. But actually what we know from COVID is that the vast majority of people who get infected with COVID will survive and, and will recover. And so the same thing has happened here with ivermectin, where there's been some really exciting and promising retrospective observational studies. There were um, actually a number of Latin American countries where um, large numbers of the population were given ivermectin, and then there were subsequent declines in the numbers of cases of, of patients in those particular cities. And again, the uh, the assumption is made that it's the drug that is actually improving outcomes. Um, but we can't make that assumption because there are other public health measures that can also cause your um, infection rates to go down, like social distancing and masking. And so you can't just assume because people were taking it and the rates went down that it's the drug. And and so that's where you have to do large randomized controlled trials. There is a preprint of a randomized controlled trial from Egypt that does suggest that there is a benefit of ivermectin, um, but it has not completed its peer review. And um, we need to see these sort of results uh, in multiple studies. So, you know, thinking back to the, the sort of wild west of the spring with hundreds of drugs being used you know, not haphazardly per se, but, you know, in, in not a regimented way, um, which obviously kind of spawned the Corona Project. When you look ahead six months or, or even a year from now, what do you think the landscape of COVID drugs will look like once we've had, you know, more data to actually make decisions? Are you optimistic that 
that new treatments will be available or that we'll, we'll have discovered the virtues of older treatments that might help? I'm not very good at predicting the future, but I will say that when the pandemic first started, I was very optimistic that there were going to be a number of drugs that would be helpful um, because there were some really nice early data that suggested that. And then over the summer, I became really pessimistic um, as a number of large trials came out and didn't show benefit from some of the early drugs that we thought were really going to be effective. But I would say I'm becoming a lot more optimistic right now as I look to the future. And that's because there are drugs like fluvoxamine, which is an obsessive compulsive disorder drug, um, drugs like baricidinib developed for RA and colchicine for gout that actually have shown benefit in randomized control trials. We're waiting for the really big trials to make us feel totally confident in the results. But there are drugs coming down the pipeline. And as we discussed earlier, understanding timing and, and the fact that a drug that might be helpful at one stage could be harmful at another is really informing the way we do these trials. And so I'm actually quite optimistic about where we'll be looking in, in five months. As I look to the future, I can't help but think to myself, how can we learn from this COVID experience? I mean, over 400 drugs have been repurposed. We've proven that, that we can repurpose, and we've proven that we can also systematically track it in a very short period of time. And I'm hopeful that as a society and as a medical system, we think to ourselves, okay, we've got 2,500 drugs already approved for something. How many other diseases could those drugs be helpful for? David, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Adam. All right, enough of this COVID chatter. Let's dish on some non-pandemic topics. It's time for another read out loud lightning round. Topic number one, Gilead's souring relationship with the Belgian drug developer Galapagos NV. Damien, what happened this week? So the news this week is that a drug co-developed by those two companies basically proved more risky than it was beneficial in an ongoing trial. And so they ended all development um, of that drug. And now that happens quite often in biotech. But the reason I think that we're talking about it and that it became such um, a narrative is that Gilead invested $5 billion to better align itself with this company Galapagos about two years ago. And it was sort of the marquee introductory move by Gilead under CEO Daniel O'Day, who had just taken the job at that time. And I think it was kind of modeled after O'Day comes from Roche. He spent a lot of time there and Roche had a very long and fruitful partnership with Genentech in which, you know, without buying the company outright, um, they kind of underlined or underwrote Genentech's science. And so there was kind of this, this vibe that that's what Gilead was doing with Galapagos. But this latest drug falling out of the wayside follows a previous one that will also never reach the market. And while their partnership encompasses a lot more drugs than just those two, it is very much, you know, going 0 for 2 in the first two tests of a $5 billion deal. And so you can imagine how people reacted. It's been an interesting trend for Gilead. I mean, going back for quite some time, the company has been trying to prove that it is more than an infectious diseases company. I mean, it's a powerhouse in HIV drugs. It, of course, was a powerhouse in hepatitis C drugs, although that franchise is smaller now as they've made progress against treating the disease. Um, but they have been trying to move into cancer in a bigger way and into inflammatory diseases in a bigger way. And the question remains, will they succeed in that? You know, obviously, they made that huge deal uh, in cancer earlier um, or a few months ago. So maybe that will, you know, sort of solidify their foothold in that space. But it's also interesting to see arguably the biggest company in infectious diseases at this time during a pandemic when we are being shown the value of companies focusing on infectious diseases uh, to see they're you know trying so hard to move uh, in other directions as well. Um, you know, one hopes that this pandemic will reinforce the 
vitalness of efforts in that space. And and of course, Gilead isn't getting out of that space. Uh, but you know, if more companies could focus on infectious diseases, I think it would be good for humanity and hopefully would be rewarded by investors as well. Yeah, you know, I reacted to this news um, by posting a GIF on Twitter uh, of the cartoon of two guys shoveling cash into a furnace. Um, that's probably a little bit harsh, but then again, $5 billion is a lot of money. And right now, uh, Gilead is not seeing a great return from that $5 billion investment. And I think, you know, the company, despite their incredible history um, and everything they've done, th that patience is wearing thin with, with Gilead. And I think people are, are desperate to see them, you know, make this sort of promised turnaround. These kinds of things happening, uh, I think, just really does try people's patience. All right, next topic. You guys reported on Monday that a science journal owned by the Alzheimer's Association punished a trio of leading researchers after they published a stinging rebuke of Biogen's drug aducanumab, which that advocacy group is lobbying regulators to approve. Tell us about what you guys found in this story. Yeah, it was a little bit strange because, you know, the punishment that you're talking about is very much kind of a seemingly petty thing, at least that's how people described it externally involving kind of the ivory towers of academic publishing. But I think what drew our interest to this was the sort of uh, Alzheimer's superstructure that is going on. I think, you know, people are probably quite well aware, and it's reported by uh, Instat and, and elsewhere, that there is a dominant mode of thought in the halls of power in Alzheimer's that favors treatments like aducanumab and the amyloid hypothesis. And, you know, we've all read about the cabal that that is alleged to kind of pull the strings. And so I think what and Adam, I'm kind of speaking for you here, but I think what, what intrigued us about this very strange situation where these researchers were punished after criticizing aducanumab is that it seemed to open in the minds of a lot of people in the field the old wound uh, of this battle that's been going on for decades in the field of Alzheimer's research where there are people who believe that treatments like aducanumab are the closest and best hope for um, the millions of people suffering from Alzheimer's disease in this country and around the world, and people on the other side who say the evidence just isn't there. We have decades of failed clinical trials, and it's time to move on from this. And so this, you know, ostensibly petty squabble in an academic journal or relating to an academic journal was very much just like an anecdote that, that allowed us to kind of dive into just how much animosity there is in this field, especially moving forward as, as the FDA is finally going to rule on aducanumab. Yeah, and I think the story also sheds some light on the Alzheimer's Association. You know, this is a this is a very influential nonprofit. You know, they call themselves a science based patient advocacy group, and and those are different hats. And sometimes those hats can to come into conflict. You know, they they say they follow the science and the data in Alzheimer's, but what we discovered in our reporting and talking to people is that um, you know there's obviously a lot of conflict about the science, and there's a lot of disagreement about the science behind aducanumab. But again, they also advocate for patients and their families with Alzheimer's. And they are lobbying the FDA um, vociferously. They, I mean, they're spending a lot of time and a lot of energy to, to convince the FDA to approve aducanumab um, on behalf of patients with Alzheimer's. And you know that coupled with the fact that they do receive funding from Biogen and other pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, kind of puts them into a, kind of a little bit of a conflict. Do you expect aducanumab to be approved? Yes, I do. And I think um, reporting out this story was uh, sort of emotionally draining, talking to a lot of, in many cases, professor emeritus who have been in this field for a long time. 
and listening to the sad resignation they had. These are people who don't believe that the evidence supports this approval um, because they kind of convinced me that it is quite likely to be approved. And then, of course, in their opinions, it, it isn't very beneficial to patients. And they think that it could set back the field of Alzheimer's research, which, as we mentioned, is, is desperate for a meaningful drug um, by, you know, flooding the market, so to speak, with something that has questionable utility and has real side effects. I'm going to say no, but my confidence in that is pretty low, meaning to say that, you know, Damien could be absolutely right. You probably noticed in recent weeks, there's been quite a bit of market volatility on Wall Street and more than a few hedge fund managers sort of nearing tears on on various cable news channels. And that's because of the influence of retail traders, often on Reddit, moving stocks in ways that the sort of masters of the universe who usually move stocks find deeply alarming and uncomfortable. And in recent weeks, that appears to have reached the small universe of biotech stocks, specifically the normally thinly traded retail-friendly small-cap biotech stocks, which have been gyrating in in really unpredictable ways in recent weeks. Adam, what is going on? So yeah, Damon, I think this was entirely inevitable. I mean, we see stocks double when, you know, good clinical trial news comes out or we see stocks get crushed when drugs fail. So that kind of volatility that is is now being experienced in other parts of the market is pretty routine in biotech. I think, you know, this added component of sort of bringing in kind of the the Reddit bros sort of, you know, uh component to it and this like whole like you know trying to gang up on short sellers is maybe something that's new but you know it's all kind of this continuing trend that I think we've seen before I almost feel like biotech invented this I mean I can't say that I've covered other sectors as closely as I've covered biotech but like seeing this kind of volatility and also the the passion to put it in maybe one more favorable uh, way of the investors in these stocks you know I'm just like welcome to our world I mean we've we've been hearing from investors who are very passionate about stocks that are out of favor with you know more traditional investors and big firms uh, for years um the difference with biotech you know from a gamestop or an AMC I mean it's not like that memeable kind of you know nostalgic kind of company biotech is often esoteric and you know it's not something that like everybody is going to use the kinds of drugs that biotech companies work on. Um, So it's a little bit of a different flavor, but um, definitely this volatility has been around. Yeah. And, you know, we are experiencing just overall an incredible bull market for for stocks, just all stocks right now. And and just to give you a, a taste of what that's like in the biotech world now, this week, I think it was on Wednesday, there were zero, meaning none, no biotech stocks that were priced under $1. The cheapest biotech stock that I found in my screen, and I screened stocks for like a minimum of fifty million dollar market cap. The cheapest stock was a bucko to a share. So that that's just an incredible. I can't remember a time when there weren't a true penny stock in biotech. We're gonna have to change the terminology to dollar stocks. <laughs> exactly. Starting this month, Stat's family of podcasts is growing. Our new show is an extension of Stat's first opinion section, which regularly publishes perspectives from doctors, patients, industry executives, and people from every corner of health and medicine. It is fittingly called the First Opinion Podcast, and it's a weekly conversation show about people, issues, and ideas that are shaping healthcare. Joining us to preview the show is Pat Skerritt, the founding editor of First Opinion and the host of its new podcast. Pat, thanks for joining us. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Pat, before we get into the show, maybe tell listeners a little bit about the written word version of First Opinion and what all of your job entails. Do you have an hour? (laughs) We do, but you don't. (laughs) Um, Thanks, uh, Adam. So First Opinion began uh, right at the launch of STAT. We wanted to find a way to bring in readers uh, to be part of the conversation that uh, our reporters were starting. So we opened it up to um, opinion and perspectives from, as you described, people from all walks of life in the life sciences industry. And what I do is uh, multiple things with first opinion. Part of my job is to reach out to people who I think might have an interesting story to tell or an interesting perspective to offer. I manage all the ones that come in over the transom, and then I edit them often extensively, and uh, go back and forth with authors and then publish. We're just meeting, you know, for the first time here on this podcast, so it's nice to meet you. And I think what a lot of listeners would like to know is tell us about you. You're the host of this podcast, and um, you're the guy we're going to be hearing from every week interviewing these folks. So tell us about, you know, your background and um, how you got to STAT. So it, it was a, an odd route to STAT. I started out... Um, I started out life as a biologist. I was really interested in um, aquatic ecology, the interaction of little tiny plants and the things that eat them. I got derailed in graduate school by illness. I went on to be a high school biology and chemistry teacher. Uh, I did that for 10 years and then fell into journalism, working for a little paper. I went from there to freelance science writing. I wrote for science and popular science and tech review and those kinds of publications, and then landed a job at Harvard Medical School in their consumer publishing division, helping doctors find ways to write for regular people uh, and offer health information for regular people. And then one day in the summer of 2015, these three people, Rick Burke, Gideon Gill, and uh, Stephanie came to talk about a partnership between Harvard Health Publications and this new thing called STAT. Within a minute, I knew there was gonna be no partnership. I also knew that they were gonna have my resume on their desk before they got back to Morrissey Boulevard. So with all that in mind, what can people expect when they tune into the First Opinion podcast? The idea for the podcast is each week to talk with a very recent First Opinion author. And what listeners will will hear, what they'll get from the podcast is a, is a recap of the First Opinion that, that caught my attention, but then they'll be able to get so much more than they could have gotten in the 800 to 1,000 word um, uh, written article. And I guess most importantly, Pat, uh, when does the show debut and, and how can people find it? We launch on February 17th with two episodes, one with emergency room physician and storyteller extraordinaire Jay Baruch, and the other with Lauren Powell, who wrote a, a really terrific essay on um, health disparities. Anyone can find the podcast on SoundCloud, on Spotify, basically wherever good podcasts are sold. Pat, thanks for joining us. Thanks for asking me to be on. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. 
Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. And our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and when you think you'll be able to buy Helen Branswell a drink. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.